Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. My guest today is an accomplished thriller author who also has a PhD in technology and international relations. So a very fascinating combination and I'm excited that he's here and also to pick his brain about stories and storytelling for thrillers. Uh, Mike Madden grew up working in the canneries, feed mills and slaughterhouses of California's San Joaquin Valley. A lifelong fascination with history and warfare ultimately led to a Ph.D. in political science focused on, as I say, conflict and technology in international relations. Years later, he earned an additional degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. Like millions of others, he first became a Tom Clancy fan after reading The Hunt for Red October. He began his published fiction career in the same techno-thriller genre, starting with Drone and the sequels Blue Warrior, Drone Command, and Drone Threat. In 2013, he joined the campus as a writer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan Jr. series, starting with Point of Contact, Line of Sight, Enemy Contact, and last year's Firing Point, each hitting the New York Times bestseller lists. He's currently working on an exciting new franchise, that is yet to be announced, and that's a nice teaser, by the way, Mike, that you ended with in the bio that you sent our way. So anyway, I'm super glad that you're here, and thanks for joining me on the show today. Stephen, a real pleasure. And by the way, I read a book called Story Trump Structure, and you should always have a great little hook on the end of a chapter to keep them reading, as I understand. <laughs> there you go. No, that's great. No, I appreciate the call out to to that book uh, that I wrote, now, I guess a number of years ago, man, I'm trying to remember when Story Trump Structure came out, but, um, but uh, I appreciate, I appreciate the mention, and um, I'll say, first of all, my editor at Penguin Random House first brought you to my attention um, when he mentioned you live in the same great state that I do, Tennessee, so I'm thrilled to have the chance to chat with a fellow transplant to the South. Yeah, Tennessee is just remarkable, and yes, we share the legendary Tom Colgan, just <laughs> a great, a great guy, and you know what a partner to to be able to work with. And uh, Tom was actually the paperback editor of my first four books, the Drone series. Oh wow! And then he was, and then he was the, the senior editor, managing editor for the the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. books that I wrote. So. I've, had a, I've been blessed to work with uh, Tom now for eight years. It's, it's been great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, uh, he, he has actually had um, one of the most amusing um, journals that I've seen over this last year. If anyone is oh. a Twitter fan, uh, look up Tom Colgan on Twitter. And basically every day for the last over a year now, he has done kind of the lockdown coronavirus um, daily journal where he shares something typically humorous about every day to kind of help people get through. So that's been entertaining uh, and, and kind, of, kind of fun to see and read and share in the news about. Yeah, the Plague Journal. And uh, 
I told him to knock it off because I'm telling you, Hollywood's going to snatch that thing up and we're going to lose him. He's going to, he's going to be one of those Hollywood types and, and we won't have <laughs> access to him anymore. So, Yeah, it's fun stuff. So, Well, um, this, is, this is cool. So it's a great connection and um, I'm excited to, to pick your brain a little bit. I know in the bio I mentioned that you were first drawn to techno thrillers by reading The Hunt for Red October. Tell, tell us a little bit, what was it about this story that really drew you in to that world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, uh, there are so many books, uh, like so many restaurants, but there aren't many great books. Uh, and that was one of them for me, certainly, and obviously for millions and millions of fans for decades. I mean, people are still now just discovering that book if they're young and they fall in love with it. And I think that what made Tom Clancy particularly special was two things, at least for me. One was that he somehow managed to take technology, uh, jet fighters, submarines, you name it, and turn it into almost a character in the novel. Hmm. Um, this isn't specific. I, in my opinion, only. Uh, I can't remember, and I wasn't that well-read as a, as a, as a young man, um, in this literature, but I never remember reading a novel before where, for, for example, usually an action hero you know, would charge into a room with a pistol in his hand and start firing. But when Tom Clancy wrote, you know, the, the character has a, a Glock 19 uh, with a double-stack mag, <laughs> carrying nine, nine, nine millimeter hollow points. I mean, and, and so, and so this, this technology would go everything from, you know, gun in the hand all the way up to, you know, uh, geo-orbital satellite systems. I mean, he, he covered the whole gamut of technology, strategic, tactical, close quarters combat. Um, and so the technology itself became alive. It wasn't like a throwaway line, like, you know, the gun, the bullet. But, he, but because he was so specific in, in naming these technologies and describing them and how they worked and who used them and, and, and what circumstances, he suddenly elevated the technology to a level, like say, almost of characterization. And so you became as excited about what technology might pop up in the next chapter as you were about the next villain or, or protagonist. Interesting. And I just thought, yeah. to me, it was, just, was, it was very remarkable. Yeah, I know um, when I first saw it, well, I'll just refer to the movie of uh, The Hunt for Red October when I first saw that. I, one of the things that really fascinated me was sort of the transformation from, okay, so this um, basically data analyst or whatever kind of sitting in the basement of a building to suddenly by the end of the story, he's literally saving the world from annihilation and you kind of watch and you're like okay yeah yeah no that makes sense that's totally believable and you're like wait a minute how how did this guy get here oh i don't know but i believe it it seemed to work for me it's pretty astonishing it's a it's very interesting and actually that was one of the things i wanted to chat with you for a, a, a second about and that is this idea of action uh, versus thrillers and uh, character arcs. I'll explain what I mean. So some people have the theory or whatever that uh, an action story is really with a protagonist or main character who is prepared in some way 
to face the, the, the bad guys, the superhero or whatever it is that he's got these skills that he goes into battle and, and fights them. But a thriller is often about a character who's uh, kind of an everyday person, right? And he's thrown into this bigger-than-life conflict where he has to rise to the occasion and then face these forces of antagonism and maybe grow or learn as a result. And so in the first case, action heroes don't usually have sort of this character change. They start as heroic, basically, and as heroic. But the other type in thrillers tend to have more of this sort of transformative arc or character arc. And so what, what's your view about that? I know you've written, you know, lots of different books over the years, some actions and thriller, and, and maybe you don't differentiate, but, but talk a little bit about the characters and whether they change or, 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 or maybe not. Yeah, no, that's a really wonderful question. And uh, it harkens right back to your last comment about uh, Tom Clancy, and I agree with you. Um, there are two types of, of these protagonists. And, and the one you referred to, of course, is Jack, you know, the iconic Jack Ryan, who sustains the entire series. And even, uh, even though he's uh, older and the president during the Jack Ryan Jr. series, he still plays a prominent role, for example, even in my last book, um, mm. uh, Firing Point. But um, he starts off, as you said, as this sort of analyst, uh, a guy behind a desk. He technically had an injury, uh, a helicopter crash, hurt his back at... It's what uh, medical discharge from the Marines because of that. And um, like you said, basically a, a man sitting behind the desk who by the end of the story is this larger-than-life action hero. <laughs> yeah. Sidebar, you, you, you know, Tom Clancy's a writer. You and I are writers. We sit behind desks, and we imagine ourselves to be superheroes. So <laughs> no wonder we love Tom Clancy. <laughs> you know? Fun, yeah. And, and again... Among his, of his many geniuses, here's a guy who was literally an insurance agent uh, who was writing, you know, uh, Hunt for October on the side, hmm. never served a day in his life in the military. And when I would go on book tour, by the way, yeah. uh, military bases, wherever, I would have these folks walk up to me, uh, retired generals and admirals, colonels and majors, you name it. And they'd say, you know, I was walking down the halls of the Pentagon uh, I had just been briefed on this new top-secret weapon system uh, <laughs> that I didn't even know existed, but I just read about it in Tom Clancy the night before. So, <laughs> so somehow the full-time insurance agent running down, you know, uh, and, and, by, and one last genius on this, and I'll answer your question, I promise. Oh, no, that's but fine. People, some, some people sometimes comment to me, like, how do you know all this stuff? How do you find this stuff out? Well, of course, it's research. Mm-hmm. But my research is, is, isn't all that hard. I've got... You know, Uncle Google, who lives in the house with me, I just sort of get on the keyboard, type, 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 and I find stuff. But here, imagine Tom Clancy shuffling down to the public library, and, and for the younger folks out in the audience there, it's a building with things called books inside of it, <laughs> and then these things called card catalogs, these ancient, you know, antique uh, analog systems of data information management, which is you open up a, a drawer and you run your fingers over these cards, or you know, microfiche. Remember those? Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah. So here, so here's the guy doing microfiche and index cards, you know, uh, s- sniffing out some of the deep, deepest secrets of you know the, the Soviet Union, and the United States. I mean that. So that's he really was a superhero. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, actualizing on on the page. So, but back to your point. 
So yeah, so, so for like a Jack Ryan, who certainly in the early run of, of his existence, he was this analyst who kept rising up, you know, sort of book after book, uh, acquiring more and more skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that we love those kind of characters, and, he, and he's a beloved character because I think we can all identify with that, right? Most of us are not uh, uh, Navy SEAL operators. We're not trained to do halo jumps and do all the amazing things that, you know, our, our real life uh, heroes are, are doing uh, every day for us. But uh, we like to read about them. But even so, when we read about them, truthfully, we admire them. It's like, but that's not me. I've never, I can't do that. I've never done that. Right. And so when we introduce an action character who's more like us, more vulnerable, more broken, more afraid, more unsure of themselves, and as we see them transform over the course of an action story, then we kind of transform over the action story. We start to say, well, yeah, you know, if I were in that circumstance, that's what I would do too. I like so, it, sure, yeah. I, yeah, so I think, I think both ways are really smart because when you do take, like you say, a full-blown action hero that doesn't really change, I like that too. I, you know, I, I, want, I want my good guys to be good guys. And I always want right. them to be good, and I always want them to win. And so typically in, in the action stories I've written, the good guys are good, and they're strong, and they get stronger. And, uh, and so that just means I have to have you know, uh, a series of, of, of antagonists who are, are increasingly powerful and difficult and more challenging to deal with. Yeah. I know that, and you've probably run into this as well over the years, is maybe you've gone to writer's conferences, talked to other writers, read books, and so on, but there's a lot of um, information out there about character arcs. You know, your character must change and so on. And some story theorists believe stories are there to change characters, others that stories are there to reveal characters. And we don't need to get into all of the implications of that. But the one thing that's fascinating to me is that a lot of writers whose work that I read, aspiring writers, will start with characters who aren't very likable. Like, they whine or pout or they're, like, look down on people or judgy or whatever. And I'm like, why is your character like this? I don't want to spend time with them. And they're like, because his character arc, at the end, he's likable. And I'm like, no one's going to stick with your character. No to the end of the story if they don't want to spend time with him. So, um, so yeah, uh, have you ever seen that c- kind of in some people's work wherever they start it and you're like, man, this character, I just don't want to spend time with them because they've sort of bought into this idea that they can start one way and end another. Just curious. Yeah, I absolutely believe that there's a... When the protagonist changes... Yeah. Um, some very powerful things can happen. And, you know, psychologically, um, a, a reader, as they begin to read, whoever the point of view character is, which is usually a protagonist in mm-hmm. most stories, uh, of course, there can be multi-point uh, of view novels, but for the most part, if it's a, a primary protagonist, uh, the reader's going to view the world through the eyes of that protagonist. And psychologically, what that then means is that the reader takes on the character of the protagonist. Hmm. So, um, as a, so as the protagonist begins to change and makes decisions and takes heroic actions or whatever, the, the, the reader is, is taking that on as well. And so they feel empowered, they feel excited, they feel afraid when you know, maybe the protagonist goes into a dangerous situation. Yeah. And that's what you want. The, by the protagonist is your psychological means of, 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 of seizing the reader and holding on. So back to your point, yeah. I think the word that has ruined so many people is the word likable. Mm-hmm. Uh, a protagonist absolutely does not have to be likable. 
Um, but they have to be empathetic. There you go. And like you said, I think that, that new writers are thinking, well, I have to go from unlike to like for the, art, for the change. No. Yeah. What you do is you have to have a character that I really identify with that I want to be around. Even, maybe I'm not even you know, similar to this person, yeah. but boy, I sure admire how smart they are. Okay, yeah, kind of quirky, but, but super smart. Or, you know, uh, um, someone who's done, you know, uh, maybe, you know, valorous military service, whatever it is. But usually characters that have powers that we admire, you know, mm. intelligence, strength, uh, maybe the ability of you know, humor, uh, gregarious. Um, you know, there's any number of things that characters can do that make us say, I'll go with this character yeah. wherever they go because I, I see what they're doing. I see what they're about. And, and I can relate to it. And I can understand it. I'll give you an odd example of this, a very odd example. Um, but, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter, uh-huh. uh, that, that is about as an unlikable character or person as I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> He'll eat you yeah? if, you're not, if you're not watching. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, something about cannibalistic serial killers are just not the kind of people I want to hang out with. But he is so intelligent, and he is so driven, and he is so brilliant uh, in the way that he moves that, in a very real way, you know, he, he is the protagonist of that story in one sense because he's driving all of the action. Hmm. Everything is keen off of what he's doing. And so there's a reason why Anthony Hopkins you know, won an Academy Award for being a serial-killing cannibal. <laughs> You know, not because we like him, but because we say this, this character has characteristics that are worth paying attention to and that, I, and that I need to follow. That's pretty interesting you brought um, that character up because, you know, a lot of people, as they start to write, they're taught, again, that, and, and well-meaningly, that your character should be consistent. In other words, like, he should act... Um, Anyway, the way, the way that he would normally act in that situation. And it's always kind of been interesting to me. Like, I think what makes characters unique and memorable isn't their consistency, like always angry with his wife, with his kid, with his dog, whatever. But the moments of inconsistency or where you, they act in a way where you're like, that really surprises me for that character. I never would have thought that. And it kind of makes them intriguing. Like a cannibalistic serial killer who loves to listen to Mozart. It's like suddenly you're like, okay, well, I, and that's kind of odd or interesting. And never seen that before. So, so a lot of people, when they start creating characters, are like, he's an action hero, so everything he does has to be tough and, um, I don't know, action-oriented or something. Well, what makes them interesting, I think, is suddenly where they're not maybe so tough, where they're gentle or where they're vulnerable, and then they become more dimensional. Absolutely, and, and, and they become more human. Yeah, I mean, at some human. level, yeah, there's got to be for char- to follow a character, you have to believe them. You have to believe this is really a, a person. And this is one of the, the ironies of, of what we do for a living, right? Is that we make things up, we make up characters. <laughs> but if they're not made out of whole cloth, right? If they're not coming out of a genuine experience, and I, I don't sound like some horrible creative writing 101 lecture here, and I apologize, but oh, no, you know, I, really, I, I really am still a fan of what we do. I, I, first of all, I love reading books. I, you know, all writers are, are, are readers, and I, I still love great books, and I'm, yeah. I'm constantly trying to devour the best ones I can, but 
the end of the day, I still believe that art in all of its forms is about truth, you know, telling the truth. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that's a, that can be capital T truth, which is a different conversation about theme or whatever. But in the small truth, you know, and so back to your point, no, no real human being truly always acts the same way all the time. There you go. Uh, that's, that, that's an untruth, you know, but, the, but what makes a character believable and truthful is that, you know, good guys sometimes stub their toes. You know, women who absolutely, you know, would do anything to protect their children might go out and rob a bank. Hmm. Um, so not only does it make them more interesting and multidimensional, it makes them like human beings really are, broken and fractured and contradictory and, and very often, you know, maddening, e- even as we love or admire them. That is that's great. I love how you you mention those things are truth. And one of the things that I've really noticed as I've looked at the work of aspiring authors over the last five or six years is that idea that I'm looking for honest moments. When I read something, I'm like, yeah, that's what the character would totally say or do or think or whatever. And I like to point those out to authors. They're like, really? That's the only thing you like in this chapter? I'm like, well, I'm not trying to say that. But, <laughs> but I love that, that moment feels totally honest where I read it. I'm like, yes, that's the way the world is. That's the way this character is. That's believable and, and all of those things. So let's talk about believability for a second. Uh, we're writing kind of high concept stories or stories that um, have tech, you know, techno thrillers and so on where it's bigger than life sometimes. How do you make a story like the ones that you have become famous for, how do you make those believable to readers? So when they're reading about these amazing, you know, um, action sequences or techno uh, deductions and so on like that, they're like, yeah, no, totally. I get it. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, again, what we do is, as fiction writers, uh, novels, screenplays, whatnot, um, I think it was Hitchcock that said that, you know, movies are real life with all the boring parts cut out. I like that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think there's some truth to that. So if I'm going to write a big action sequence with some amazing new piece of technology, my personal conceit is I do as much research as I possibly can so I'm grounding the technology in something that actually exists. Mm, yeah. Um, and so sometimes, depending on, on the particular book I'm working on or you know, the genre, maybe I push that out a couple of years. So like in my drone series... Every single piece of technology I used was actually deployed or on the drawing boards uh, or, you know, somehow in the works. So several years ago now, my word, where's the time go? Um, I actually found a Google patent online for a video camera that was in a contact lens. So I just happened to find that patent, and so I, I folded it in the book. Well, now it's out, you know, they're actually in use now. So now it looks like, you know dinosaur talk but at the time and people would read my stuff and say man this is all science fiction i said no it's not science fiction it's this right. is all really you know really smart people are, are thinking about this stuff or that it's actually out there so i think grounding you know things in in reality as much as you can but then also taking the boring parts out so again you know if i'm doing an action scene uh as almost any military person will tell you uh, an infantryman say who's been in combat the moment we are in combat is about adrenaline and gunfire and mortar rounds and all the things that we associate with, say, action or an action novel. But 99% of the time uh, uh, in the infantryman's life is they're way in the barracks, they're standing in line, they're getting chow, you know, they're taking a shower. I mean, it's mostly boring. And so 
you always want to claw away anything and write an action sequence, claw away anything that slows the story down. You know, if it, if it doesn't move the action forward, take it out. And so, yeah, so you take out all the boring parts, you, you bring in as much of the reality as you can, but then, for example, you're not going to describe every single, like, you know, if a, a, a fellow's going to fire a, a, a pistol, you're not going to describe all the tendons and joints in, in the finger. And, <laughs> I've you know, seen the, people the, do you know, it, <laughs> You're right, yeah. I have too, yeah. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. My, my, you know, the book, you know, hits my nose and I fall asleep. Yeah, so you can, over, you can overdo that. But, you know, that's to another point, though, about believability is specificity is so key. You know, again, it's going back to Clancy because I just am such a fan. But you know, not just a pistol, you know, but a you know a Colt 1911. So the more specific you are, the the more the more you know that the the that the writer has seen it and possibly has even held it and shot it. And um, and so by bringing that specificity, you're really you're bringing you know a heightened reality uh, to that moment. And then again, cutting out the parts that don't matter. So it's, it's fine that you, you know, the, the character, you know, grips the, you know, the, the pistol and they feel the coldness of the steel, but I don't then need a, you know, 25 page discussion about, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the Bessemer process and how steel is made and when it's poured and, you know, the, the coal, the coal mine it came from, right? So knowing what to cut out, you know, what to leave in, you know, be as specific as you can. And then, but always pointed toward the action, the action moment. And, and that's, that's how I kind of work my way through, whether it's small action moments or, or the really big ones. That's good. That's good. I like that. Um, I was talking with... Well, and it's, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was, was going to add, and, and one more thing, and I'm shamelessly going to promote Story Trump Structure, your book, and, and especially an action sequence, for any novel, certainly, but action sequence, you've got to have tension. Mm-hmm. You know, and that yeah. it's not, and so you, you really need to have, you know, an action hero who's going into a combat situation against uh, a, an antagonist who is perfectly capable of wiping them out. And mm-hmm. so I think the other mistake that people make in, in, in trying to write their first action novel is the good guys are way too big and strong and powerful, and the bad guys are, are, are you know, mewling little kittens uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the bush. <laughs> and, and I think the way, and I think one of the really neat tricks I've always tried to use, uh, in, at least in my published writing, uh, we won't talk about the unpublished, there's a reason for that, uh, <laughs> is that you know, every antagonist, if, if you can hold this idea, every villain, every antagonist thinks they are the protagonist of their own movie. Mm-hmm. And so when you invest that kind of energy into your, into your antagonist, Suddenly, they are more powerful and dynamic and interesting and complex and all the things we just talked about. And so suddenly now they are a genuine, believable, authentic challenge to your, to your you know, action hero. And that, now you've got tension. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great. Uh, I was just um, thinking back to what was I going to say a minute ago. Oh, I remember. Yeah, no, when we were talking believability. I think I was talking with Donald Moss, who has written a number of books on writing and is also an agent from New York. Uh, well, actually, I think he moved recently. But anyway, Don, Don Moss is a good friend. And, um, and he said one time, one of the ways to make the unbelievable believable is to have an expert argue against it. So, hmm. which was odd to me. Like, you'd think you would have an expert argue for it. But let's say that you're writing a 
story about AI or something, and you're like, one character says to another one, is it possible to download someone's consciousness to a computer? And the computer expert says, no way, it's not. But are you sure? There's no way to do it. And the, the world's expert, you know, on AI or whatever says, no, there is no way to do it. Are you absolutely sure? In two years, would it be possible? The guy says, it'll never happen. And every reader's reading that saying, oh, yes, it will. In fact, <laughs> it probably happened already. <laughs> and yeah. It's a strange dynamic that I've, I admit I've used in a couple of my books where I'm like, all right, this seems pretty unbelievable. I'm just going to have an argue, you know, someone who's an expert argue against it. And by the end, readers are like, Yes, come on. Anyway, it's just an interesting little. Um, no, no, it's, that's, a, not, it's a, that's a genius observation for I think all kinds of reasons. And one is that you know if uh, the good guy goes up to the expert and says, "Can you do this?" Yeah, you can. Well, again, where's the conflict? Where's the tension? There's, yeah, there you go. There's, there's nothing going on there. If the expert just validates what the protagonist said, then there's no point in having the expert or, or the protagonist. Yeah. So I think that's just really brilliant to have that, you know, that moment of, of tension, if you will. And uh, I also say right now we're, you know, ironically, you know, the information age that we're all living in right now, uh, I've never had access to so much information, and yet yeah. I just don't, I have even less idea about what's really going on in the world. And isn't it amazing that, you know, right now so many experts are so wrong? Um, yeah. we've seen that especially in the last year that uh, people are, are trot out from the TV and they say this is how it is and then 15 minutes later either they change their minds or someone else says no they were wrong and off you go and so in a funny way I think we're trusting experts less and less uh, mm-hmm. and so for an expert to say you, know, you absolutely can't I think at least, you know, in our culture right now we're probably secretly saying yeah he's probably wrong or she's probably wrong <laughs> right? you know, experts keep telling me wrong so I, I love that technique. I think it's a really smart way to, to, to think about that. And it might be tied to the idea that, you know, when you bring something up in a story, readers expect that things in a story aren't always what they appear to be. They're, there's twists and turns and, and plot pivots and stuff. And this came clear to me when I was talking with my wife one night. We were watching some cop show on television. She goes, it's always a bad sign on a cop show. Never say this if you're on a cop show. I'm going to retire in six months because she's like, it means you're going to die by the end of this episode. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good point, you know. <laughs> or if a character says, I'll be here forever. I'll never leave you. Every, everyone watching or reading is like, oh, no, he's totally going to leave. So, yeah, it's an interesting, I think, dynamic. Now, yeah, we, I, we do tell it. Yeah, we do. I think that the testimony to how smart your wife is and how bad the writing can sometimes be in <laughs> television. Um, so, yeah, we've, you brought it up a couple times, this idea of tension. And um, so I want to ask, a, this is, I think it'll be a, a great question for you to address because it's something I've struggled with some. And that is, how do you increase tension during like action sequences like I've read some books where there's an action sequence super exciting in let's say act one or whatever however many acts I might have then act two same kind of thing Um, act three or whatever same thing until finally I'm just bored like there was there have been some movies where I've watched these giant robots attack other giant robots and so like at the climax they just throw each other through buildings for like 20 minutes and I'm just like tons of action little tension, I'm kind of bored. 
So how do you actually tackle, because you write action sequences, action thrillers, how do you deal with ratcheting up the tension and stakes um, without undermining it by having too much too early? Well, right there is the key. You just nailed it. Um, I'm a strong believer in less is more. Mm. Um, You know, like I said, one great fight scene is great. 47 in a row, not so much. Interesting. And I I think we think that, yeah, an action action novel is not a novel that is only action. Uh, The action, to me, is a culmination of the tension that you've established. So, for example, what makes uh, an action scene to me like really riveting is not when the gunfire is actually happening. It's the, the 10 seconds before, you know, the hero staying outside the door, having no idea what's on the other side of the door, but knowing that, the, you know, that there's a ticking bomb and there's hostages, and if they don't move in 30 seconds, you know, the hostages are going to die, but he also knows that what behind that door is going to kill him too. It's that moment, you know, as, as, he, as she or she is putting, you know, their hand on the doorknob and turning it. That's your moment of tension. Uh, door kicks open, of course, then all hell breaks loose and, yeah. and you have all kinds of good stuff. But that's just the release of that tension. Huh. And you like want that. the satisfaction saying, ah, you know, my hero won. They defeated the bad guys. And it's amazing how they did that. But if I wasn't, you know, if my, my pulse wasn't pounding, you know, while, you know, the hand's being put on the doorknob, I'm not going to care about what happens, you know, after the door's flung open and the bullets start flying. And then when, you know, all that happens and it resolves, the question is, well, what comes next? And so then setting up that next, you know, uh, sequence of, of, you know, building attention for the next conflict, which hopefully is even more tense because the stakes are even higher, not because more bullets are flying or, like you said, more robots are being thrown through more buildings. So in a sense, action is often payoff for the promises you've made earlier. I think I hear you Perfect. saying in, a, in some sense it is. That's yeah. exactly it. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. I like that. That's good. Um, so I wanted to ask a question just related to you've been writing thrillers for a number of years now. You've done your own series and another series. Um, what are some of the greatest challenges like that you've faced as an author um, in, in shaping your stories? I mean, some people, it's research. Some people, it's plot. Some people, character. Or what. I was just curious if in your journey you've ever like, faced a really big challenge saying, man, I don't know how to tackle this or whatever, and how you overcame that to, to finish that book. Uh, you know, I'm curious to answer that question myself. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, every book for me is a challenge. Every single uh, one. Good, I remember good. years ago I read, I think it was Hemingway, who said, every time I, I start a new book, I have to learn how to write all over again. And I remember reading that saying, oh, that's mm. just ridiculous. Until I had to write my second novel. And then my third and my fourth and so on. <laughs> I mean, every book for me, I feel like I'm starting all over again. Uh, and in a sense, I am. Um, because it's a new story, it's maybe new characters, new situation. And so every book to me is a challenge. It's, it, and and what I, one piece of advice that I say to encourage new writers that often uh, their jaws drop and their eyes water over, brimming with tears, uh, I say, remember your first novel that you're writing will be the worst novel you've ever written. Hmm. And they look at me kind of crazy, like, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, because you're a new writer. You know? So the worst thing you will have ever published, you're writing right now. 
but you only learn to write by writing, right? You only get better as you write. And so the second novel now is better than the first one. So that's why, you know, the first one is your worst. But your third one will, should be better than your second. And so if you're constantly trying to improve your craft and, and, and drive deeper into your skill sets and enlarge your skill sets, every book should be hard. At least, that's, at least that's been my experience. And so every book, you know, poses those different challenges. Certainly the big challenge is, you know, what is the shape and size and scope of the story and, you know, how to organize it. And um, I, I know that you are a proponent of this organic approach, which I absolutely admire and think is just awesome. But uh, I'm just not bright enough, I think, to pull it off at this point. Oh, no, it isn't uh, that. So I, I tend, I, so I tend to outline up front, and I yeah. spend a lot of time. I, I probably spend, oh, I, I spend more brain energy building the outline than almost any other part of the of the novel. And you know, the challenge there, of course, is when you think of an outline, you're thinking of structural elements of you know acts and hooks and like you say, rising action or, you know, the, the call to action or you know, all the things that we know that you're supposed to do, you know, and all the how-to books about how to, you know, write a novel. But the real challenge there then is, so you lay out this, this outline, and suddenly what you have is not a living, breathing, you know, exciting opportunity to bring new characters to life and to, you know, sort of change the, the literary universe, what you have basically is a giant set of, you know, engineering schematics. Mm. And, and suddenly you're, it, it's about nuts and bolts and the thing is just dead. And so for me, those structural elements are really important, but I know that that's just the beginning of starting to build an outline. The next thing, even more important than building the outline is really, and here is to me is the challenge of, of writing do I know these characters? You know, who are these characters? Yeah. Do I really know how they think, how they're organized, how, you know, you know, how can I make sure that, you know, that not that I'm consistent in their behavior, but that I'm consistent in the, in, in the way that they present themselves. So sure. they can absolutely be contradictory and they can actually have multiple emotions, but I want to make sure that I really, you know, that all my characters aren't saying the same things and doing the same things because I haven't taken the time to actually think about, that all these characters are actually different people, just like in my, in my life. Yeah, no, and so really no. camping out with those characters and then, and so sort of building out that outline, knowing who my characters are, thinking more about my characters. And, and so then I have this document that, okay, now I'm excited about it. Uh, all the structural elements I know that need to be in a story are there. They might be in different order than is typical, but they're all there. I know these characters, boom, start writing. First of all, what's the hardest? page one, blank page, first line, always the hardest. <laughs> so off you go. And then what you realize, you know, you, you get, I don't know, ankle deep into this and you realize, wow, I really don't know this character because this character now is cracking jokes. This character is making choices. And if I've designed the character well, they should be doing that. You know, they, they should be making really authentic and interesting choices that yeah. aren't in the outline necessarily. And now you've got a rodeo. You know, now, now, you're having, now you're having some fun, and now you're trying to really find out where this thing is going. And so that, to me, is the challenge, and that's the fun and the beauty and the joy and, uh, and all of that to say, as you will know, and a lot of hard, hard work. 
Now, that's really interesting um, that when you approach it, you really try to actually, from what I'm hearing, try to listen to the characters as you write like, and, and respond. Like, I didn't expect this, but this character, I mean, it's in concert with who they are to crack this joke or whatever. And I think that's really, you know, one of the biggest keys is that ability to remain sort of nimble and responsive as new ideas come, as the characters evolve and so on like that. And, and so, yeah, no, that's, that sounds like a good approach. Yeah, my outlines are, like, fairly detailed, but they're, they're roadmaps. But once I, you know, once I get in the car, if I, you know, see a fruit stand on the side of the road that looks good, and, you know, a Granger County tomatoes, uh, as a shout-out to my, my, my Tennessee folks, uh, yeah. I'm going to pull over and, and, grab, and grab a, ba- a basket. So uh, if my characters need to pull off the side of the road or they you know, need to grab a burger or go see a movie, we're going. So it's a, it's a really interesting dance between yeah. Yeah. having sort of these structural elements but then having these, these really authentic you know, living moments because, you know, again, that's what makes these characters you know, people that we want to follow and that we care about and that you know, we're really interested in what happens to them. Well, for people who haven't read your stories before, um, you've written a number of series over the years, and um, where would you say, if people are like, okay, this is really interesting, um, I totally want to read Mike's books, but I don't know where to start, where, where would you say, okay, look, this is a good spot to begin with this series or that series or maybe the latest, where would you tell people to start with re- reading some of your thrillers? Uh, well, uh, what's those saying? Wherever books are sold, uh, but certainly go to MikeMadden.com, cleverly titled, is my <laughs> author page. And yeah, I have two basic series. One's the Drone series, and the first book in that four-book series is also cleverly titled Drone. And then uh, for Tom Clancy, I wrote um, four other Jack Jr. Uh, books. Those all came out. Um, they come out in the summer, and the first one of those that I wrote was called Point of Contact, and all of those are Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books, they're there. Audio, ebook, the whole nine yards. Um, but the the commonality between both is, you know, they're 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 tech heavy. Drone is slightly different because I fell in love with the concept of drones early on. I mean, like all of us who were following, you know, as uh, you know, after 2000 uh, or 9/11 happened and and. Uh, uh, we went into the Afghanistan and then Iraq and, you know, the whole war on terror. We were all, you know, paying attention to it. And this word drone kept popping up. And I was just fascinated by it. And I started tracking with that technology, which has actually been around quite a long time. Uh, but to make a long story short, I just decided that I really want, you know, drone technology to be actually the, you know, one of the main characters of my novels. Yeah. The same way that Tom Clancy had done with his. And so... All things drone and drone-related, uh, that include military, police, crime, uh, politics, uh, even some moral issues. Um, I try to raise in each and every novel as different kinds of antagonists uh, take on these technologies every bit as much as, as the protagonists do. And then Tom, the Tom Clancy series uh, focuses on uh, Jack Ryan Jr., and that's the son of, of course, iconic Jack Ryan Sr., who's the president. And uh, Tom Clancy, again, did something very clever. He figured out that his main guy probably couldn't be an action hero and be in the White House at the same time. <laughs> so he gave him a son uh, who now is, you know, run, uh, is part of a, an organization called The Campus. And um, now, you know, sort of the action hero stuff that the young Jack Ryan used to do, now his son, Jack Ryan Jr., does. And so 
those are really fun too. And those are a little less tech savvy and more, you know, more on the action side, but really enjoyed writing both of the series. Very fun. Um, the fans were more than generous with me. The Tom Clancy folk are super sharp. Uh, they catch every typo and rightly so. And, uh, and, um, but they're also very kind and gracious and accepted me into the fold. And um, can't wait to see what Don Bentley, who's taking over the junior franchise for me, will do with it uh, this year. Fantastic. Great. Well, that's good. And so we want our listeners to go check out your stories. Anyone who's a fan of Tom Clancy over the years or techno thrillers in any way, you'll love Mike's stories, Mike's books. So do check those out. Um, and uh, before we close up, I was just going to see if you had any, you know, um, quick words of advice or encouragement for people who are out there, uh, you know, trying to write, tell stories, any final, ed, you know, advice from the hip kind of uh, closing ideas. Yeah, you know, I, I'd say several things, but I, probably my favorite story along those lines are two of my best friends in the world I graduated from college with. Uh, and from the 1983 to 2010, uh, these two guys, the two of them wrote um, 30 novels. Hmm. Uh, among of those 30 novels they wrote, they never sold a single one. Wow. Um, but they never stopped writing. And suddenly, uh, this thing called the interwebs showed up and Kindle and eBooks, and they started writing for there, and now they're both multimillionaires. And they sell more books uh, when they do new releases than the vast majority of, quote-unquote, New York Times bestselling authors do. Wow. Um, so the point is, they never gave up. And uh, sure, we all want to make a living from what we do, and we especially we want to make a living from doing what we love. But the point is, those guys wrote because they loved writing. You know, they told the stories that they wanted to tell. And they didn't wait for permission, uh, and they were never given permission, in quotes, and then suddenly a technology showed up that gave them permission. And there's all kinds of you know, challenges to being self-published. I'm not advocating self-publishing per se. But the point is, you know, write because you're a writer. You know, write because it's the calling on your life. Write because this is the thing that you know you're supposed to do and be faithful with it and, and work hard at it uh, and, and really believe that you know, the, the work itself is its own reward. And so if you give up any kind of idea that your validation or your purpose or your meaning comes from the fact you got published or not. You know, let that go. That's just ridiculous. Your value and your purpose and meaning and worth in the universe doesn't come from getting published or anything else. It, it, it resides in the very fact of your existence. And so out of that sort of strength and that energy and that hope uh, that we're alive and anything's possible, then tell your stories. Tell your stories. Tell them well. Work hard. Learn the craft. Read awesome books like Story Trump Structure by Stephen James, who you want a really good head start, you know, and dig in. And, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry to go on like this, James, but there's one no. book that really sort of shook me, shook me by the lapels years ago. Uh, Madeline Langle, uh, the great, uh, she would not call herself a children's author, but children loved her books, uh, certainly a sci-fi author. But she um, wrote a book called Walking on Water. And that book really grabbed me because she's the first person that really helped me see the connection that, you know, my, my writing life and my spiritual life have an awful lot in common. You know, in fact, the, the way that we move through the world as writers and the way we move through the world as spiritual people are almost the same. They take discipline and focus 
and sacrifice and hard work. And sometimes you're going to fall down and sometimes you got to, you need forgiveness, you extend forgiveness, you need mercy, you grant mercy. But at the end of the day, it's the same journey. And, and so really understanding that the calling of writing on your life is much larger than the fact you got published or not, or that it was a bestseller or not. And if you can sort of relax into that and, and own it, um, everything's possible. And, and that's my story, and that's and well, I'm sticking to it. So there I you love go. it. Great thoughts, great comments. I have that book on my shelf, just as you were mentioning. I was like, oh, there it is right there on my shelf. So um, a great book of encouragement and great note of encouragement. And so uh, we'll close up with, with that. And I just wanted to say, um, first of all, thanks for your time. Thanks for the, the great insights and motivation uh, and for taking the time, like I say, to, to share with us today. Then I'd also like to say thank you to our listeners, to all of you who have uh, tuned in, dialed in, wherever you are listening, on whatever podcast format you are. You can find out more about our other guests and to check out our other interviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.